Todd already mentioned to you that we're going to be starting a new series on the book of Jonah this morning. I've been getting ready for Jonah this summer. Went to the lake twice this week thinking about Jonah. And then the Lord decided that even though I had moved offices, a new leak would appear right over my desk on Thursday. So all kinds of water in my life. Uh, Jonah, in some ways, is probably a pretty familiar story to you. Um, The guy gets swallowed by a fish and he gets spit up again uh, three days later. But in Jonah... Uh, the, the fish is really uh, not the central character, um, and that, that whole event is not really the central uh, event in the story. It actually takes up very little space um, in the narrative. Um, so in some ways, you also uh, might be more unfamiliar with Jonah than you think. Um, Jonah is between Obadiah and Micah in your Bible. This is where uh, the gold is still shiny, and the pages are perhaps stuck together uh, right before you get, about 50 pages before you get to the New Testament. Um, Jonah's a prophet, but it doesn't read, it doesn't read like a prophet. Uh, you'll see it's not like other prophecies like Isaiah or Jeremiah. It's a narrative. Instead of telling us uh, the content of a, of a prophecy, it tells us the story uh, about a prophet. And so it's almost, it's almost like a parable that tells us uh, about Israel, as it tells us about Jonah, and ends up telling us uh, about ourselves, as it tells us about Jonah. And then, like all of Scripture, um, ultimately, it, it tells us about uh, who God is. And it's much more about what God is like uh, than about what Jonah is like. So, if you've had time to find it, uh, turn to your Bibles in Jonah. Uh, If you don't have your Bible with you, we do have it printed for you there uh, in the bulletin. Uh, Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. This is Jonah chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 16. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. From the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid. And each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come. Let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. 
the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Father, we thank you now for your word. We pray that as we look at Jonah now and over the next few weeks, that you would open our eyes and that you would teach us who you are, teach us about your heart. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, will God execute justice? Or will he have compassion on his enemies? Or will he find some kind of way to do both? And who belongs to God anyway? Is it Israel? Or is it the nations? Uh, these are some of the questions that the book of Jonah is trying to answer. Uh, Jonah, son of Amittai, is only mentioned in one other place in the Bible. He shows up in 2 Kings uh, chapter 14, and we learn there that he served under Jeroboam II in the northern kingdom. Uh, this time, uh, the kingdom was split into two. Judah was the southern kingdom. Israel is the northern kingdom. And if you're, if you're not familiar with this part of Israel's history, you need to understand uh, the northern kingdom had nothing to commend itself. Uh, it had been a wicked place for 200 years by the time Jonah's doing his work. It was a dark time in Israel, and yet what you find is that God was gracious to them. Uh, the only thing we know about Jonah's work outside of the book of Jonah is that God used his prophetic ministry to expand Israel's territory during a time of overt unfaithfulness. In other words, Jonah knew that God was gracious to wicked Israel. And specifically, he had used Jonah as an instrument of his grace. He sent Jonah with good news of compassion on a wicked, undeserving people. That's all in the background of these four chapters. And what we learn is that this vast uh, magnitude of absolute sovereignty of God over all things, it goes, it goes down to a single worm by the time we get to chapter 4. And we learn about the depth of his mercy. And not just to Jonah, uh, but to Gentiles and, and even the animals in this book. We learn that God's grace is so deep 
and so wide that his own prophet finds it unsettling and even disturbing. In fact, Gentiles, they are consistently painted in a good light in this book. Jonah's really the only bad guy in the book with his name. And we're just reminded in these stark pictures about God's plan and his character that they are always for the world. And so the story starts out with God telling Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh. Uh, Nineveh was in Assyria, uh, a sort of world power at the time. It was probably uh, the capital of Assyria, and along with the storm and the wind and later on uh, the fish, Nineveh is called uh, great. And not to be too technical, but that means something like uh, big and bad here. One of the first things we learn about God in this book is that while he can properly be called uh, the God of Israel, uh, he is not a local deity. Uh, There simply is no place uh, so big or or so far away that it could be outside of his uh, jurisdiction, as one commentator put it. Uh, If Nineveh is great, well, then God is greater. Uh, The whole world is accountable to God. Uh, Not just those that know his name, but, but everyone who's made in his image. And that means not just those who come to worship at 165 Pulaski Street, but every person in the city of Athens, every man and woman in every country in the world, because God has always been the God of the nations. And so he can tell Jonah uh, to go. And you know, and if you see, he does rise, uh, but he does not go. Uh, he flees to a place called Tarshish. Uh, we don't know a lot about Tarshish. Uh, many Old Testament prophets uh, have been overwhelmed and initially shrunk back when God calls them to go proclaim uh, his word. But no one, no one responds like this. Some people think Tarshish may be uh, in Spain, which it's really hard to prove. That's the most fun suggestion because it's on the other side of the world. Uh, It may be that Tarshish is something like what we mean when we say Portland, and it could refer to any number of cities that are on a coast. Uh, What's really clear is that Nineveh is in the east and Jonah is going west. He's going toward the Mediterranean. He's going in the exact opposite direction of his divine commission here. And then the the text really just drives this home by saying he fled from the presence of the Lord. Now Jonah, Jonah was a prophet. He he was likely uh, trained in the school of the prophets. And he knew, he knew what you and I know, or at least what we profess to know, that God is always everywhere. So I so I don't think he, re- he really believed that he could escape God's watchful eye. I, th- I think this is something like a, a technical uh, religious statement here. Uh, Jonah is not attempting to get where God can't see him. Uh, he just wants to avoid being a part of what God is doing. He wants to get away from where God's word is proclaimed and from where his name is worshipped. 
And so he goes down to Joppa. Uh, the Hebrews were, were a land people, and, and he knew that if he went to a port city, he wasn't going to run into any Israelites there, and he's just determined to not do what God says. And so he goes down to Joppa and down to the ship, and later on down further into the bottom of the ship. He's going down and further down, running from God and his commission. And so we're left wondering, what is Jonah thinking? Does he even think this is going to work? The God who has command, or excuse me, the God who has commissioned him to go to great Nineveh. Is he really going to let him get away? And why is he running? And the passage here is just sort of oddly and sort of frustratingly silent on Jonah's motives. It's not until we get to chapter 4 that we're given any kind of uh, reason or more clear indication of why Jonah is doing this. But in chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah says something very startling. He says, That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. You see, Jonah's told to call out against Nineveh, but he knew that all God's pronouncements of judgment imply the possibility of repentance. And he just couldn't stomach warning these people. It was just not acceptable to him to extend the possibility of grace to Assyrians. He hated them. And he did not want God to love them. He chose to disobey God's command rather than participate in God's mercy. And so as Ian Hamilton says, Jonah had become spiritually narrow. He'd seen success in his own life and ministry as a prophet, and yet he was disconnected from God's heart. Have you seen God do great things in your own life only to find that that you really don't give a rip about what he might be doing in other people's lives? Just because you've done uh, some good deeds at church, uh, just because you're a deacon, uh, just because you maybe have even really seen God use you in profound ways, Uh, That doesn't mean uh, that you might not be running now. Uh, God desires a present faithfulness from Jonah, a present humility, and a present obedience. Our, Our usefulness to God, and again, we know Jonah knew that he had been useful. Our usefulness to God says more about him than it does us. He does not need us in order to be useful. He wants us to fear him, uh, to love him, uh, and to trust him. Jonah had been used in mighty ways by God and miraculous ways by God in the past, but now he's running. And so verse 4 
begins with this, this wonderful phrase, but the Lord. Uh, running away from God was just not going to be so easy uh, for Jonah. He's not going to allow him an easy retreat, as someone told me uh, earlier this week. If you are in competition with God, uh, you're going to lose. And what happens next might at first look like a sort of punishment, um, but I want us to see it as a gracious uh, discipline, as fatherly uh, displeasure, God exercising his sovereignty over all of creation to teach Jonah. He's God of the nations, but we also see here that he's the God of nature and even of, of chance. And so all that follows, it, it really is a consequence of Jonah's rebellion, but it's also very clear that it is God's activity at work here. It is God's love uh, for Nineveh and for Jonah uh, that propels the rest of the story. So God hurls a great wind and a storm comes. It's a serious storm. The, the text says it's a mighty uh, tempest. The sailors recognize uh, that it's a dangerous situation and so they're afraid. And they are no longer concerned about completing the voyage. Uh, they are no longer concerned about making money. Uh, they are just trying uh, to survive. If they don't get control, um, it's going to get worse for them. They've got to do something. And so they cry out to their gods. Uh, the sailors have a kind of religious impulse here. And, and you might think, well, well, that's just because they uh, were ancient Near Easterners. And that's just what everybody used to think. Well, it's because they're human. Uh, they are made by God, and we're all intuitively supernaturalists. Uh, we all recognize that the world is not just a physical place, but it is a moral world. It is only with, with great effort and, and not a little willful blindness that someone can claim to be a pure uh, materialist. Paul calls this... Uh, suppressing the truth. I've said this before, but you know, an atheist is like someone trying to hold a beach ball underwater while they deny that beach balls exist. They can say it, but they either don't believe it or they're blind. We all know that there's more to the world than what we can see. And though the sailors, you know, they're, they're wrong on the details here, uh, but they knew they needed help, and, and they recognized that the storm was not just natural. And so, so after pleading, they, they begin to throw things. Uh, God threw the wind, and now they throw uh, the cargo. Again, they are no longer interested in saving the voyage. Uh, they're, they're just trying to make it out alive. They're desperate, all in contrast uh, to their new friend Jonah. In the middle of all of this chaos, Jonah is sleeping. And again, we might, we might want some more detail, uh, but the story uh, just doesn't give us here. It's hard to know exactly what to make of it. Uh, some people uh, think that at this point, Jonah is just emotionally exhausted, uh, that he knows he's wrong and, and running from God has, has worn him out. Uh, it may be that 
This is a kind of false sense of peace. Maybe he, he thinks he's actually uh, succeeded, and so now uh, he can rest, although that wouldn't explain how he could sleep in the middle of a storm. Uh, what we do know is that in spite of the parallels from Mark chapter 4, this is nothing uh, like the sleep of Jesus uh, in the stern of the boat. He slept with absolute confidence that his father uh, would care for him. Uh, there's just something, there's something here, even, even without the details, that strikes us as wrong uh, with Jonah sleeping. Uh, even though he's not, he's not worried, apparently, he's obviously not helping. Uh, the captain is certainly shocked to find Jonah sleeping. Why aren't you calling out to your God like the rest of us? And so don't miss it. Uh, Jonah is presented here as less religious than the rest of the crew. Uh, as less aware that the storm is a divine discipline. As less dependent on divine help. And notice the words in verse 6. The captain says, Arise and call out. Uh, these are the same words that God said in verse 2, and now they come to Jonah again, but from the pagan captain's mouth. God is just not going to leave Jonah alone here. He is after him. He is pressing in. His sovereign pursuit extends uh, to the wind and to the words of the captain. And so then the captain says what Jonah ought to say. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. It's probably syncretistic. Uh, the captain's groping in the dark here a bit. But again, he's more right than Jonah up to this point. As the sailors continue to get more desperate, they cast lots. Uh, they don't know Proverbs 16, that the lots cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. But it's still true. And God is moving in and through these events right down to rolling dice. And surprise, surprise, the lot falls to Jonah. Uh, you can imagine perhaps the expression on Jonah's face at this point. Uh, he just woke up. The captain is telling him to pray to the God that he's running from. And then he randomly draws the short straw. Like, are you serious but again God is not done with Jonah he's not done you may have found yourself running from God and he's not done with you one of the great messages of the whole book of Jonah is that if God can save Nineveh then he can save you. He's God of the nations. He's God of nature and of chance. And what we see here in the end of the story is that he is the God over human hearts. You see, the sailors, they don't, they don't assume that everything is Jonah's fault right away, but they, they know it's got something to do with him now that he's drawn the short straw. And so they pepper him. Uh, with all these questions. What happened? What do you do? Where are you from? Who are your people? And Jonah's answer ends up being the center of chapter 1. Uh, literarily and, and thematically, 
Uh, This is really uh, the main point of the chapter, even though it's ironic as it comes out of Jonah's mouth. Uh, What he says here is almost unbelievable uh, considering what's come up to this point. He says, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Now, as a reader, I mean, I mean, are we supposed to believe him here? <laughs> I mean, it is what he ought to say and what he says about God is true, but it comes across as, as fake or, or delusional. I mean, the, the words on his lips have been denied uh, by his actions up to this point. Uh, but remember, uh, he had just seen the lot fall to him. And apparently all we have is a summary of their conversation because in verse 10, the sailors know that Jonah is running because, it, because he told them, it says. And so it, so it may be here that this is sort of the first step toward a confession for Jonah. The first hints that he's, he's recognizing his own fault in this situation and the first hints that he's beginning to see that God is still uh, pursuing him and he knows he knows now that, in fact, he has not outrun God. The sailors are not entirely happy uh, with this answer. Are you kidding me? You picked our ship to run from the God who made the sea and the dry land? What are we supposed to do? And all the while, the storm, it just keeps getting worse. Uh, it's very clear to them that their efforts are not working And Jonah says, well, you could throw me in the water. It's a surprising, uh, kind of abrupt turn in the story. He he offers his life, uh, not in innocence, but as what he deserves. He says in verse 12, I know it's because of me. He understands here, at least in some sense, that His actions are what has brought all this distress. And so he's offering himself to the sea in an acknowledgement of his own guilt before the God who made the sea. And the men don't listen at first. They don't want the guilt of killing a prophet of the God of heaven. But again, the storm, it keeps growing. They're not going to be able to get back to land. And so something amazing happens the sailors call out to Yahweh Jonah hasn't even spoken to God yet in the story but these unbelieving sailors they cry out to the true and living God and they pray what Jonah wouldn't pray do not let us perish they plead their own innocence not Not from all sin, but at least with regard to God's prophet. And they honor his sovereignty. They say, God, you have done as it pleased you. Uh, You made the lot fall to Jonah. Your own prophet told us to throw me in. And so that's what they do. And immediately a calm sea is both an answer to their prayer and a confirmation of their actions. They fear the Lord exceedingly. Uh, They feared a great fear. 
Jonah had claimed to fear the Lord, but we see that it's the sailors who are showing honor to God. He's been after them too. I'm sure it seemed random to them, but now God is on their boat. Now, are they converted? Uh, did what just happened, uh, is that what we call becoming Christians? Uh, again, the, the narrative is sort of sparse here, but this is the typical Old Testament response to God's deliverance. They sacrifice and they make vows. In other words, they worship and make commitment to honor and obey this God. Uh, the pagans are the ones who are presented as the true worshipers in the story. And God is presented as not only uh, great and mighty and controlling the wind and the waves, but he's a God who is ready, ready to receive anyone that calls on his name. And it's a setup. Uh, it's a setup for the rest of the story that where everything goes completely against the religious expectations of an Israelite. Some of you may have heard of uh, Rosaria Butterfield or know a little bit about her story. She, she, she wrote a book several years ago called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Um, it's a phenomenal book, uh, if for nothing else, uh, that we just get reminded of the great things uh, that God can do. Uh, but the short version of her story is that she was a lesbian, atheist, atheist professor of feminist studies who had her heart turned to Jesus. No one in her life saw this coming. She uh, did not uh, see it coming, and that's part of what makes the story so great, is her own uh, surprise at God just breaking into her life over and over again. And Jonah reminds us that this is just what God does. He pursues sinners. He turns hearts in the most unlikely places. God is always on the move. Far too often we just predetermine uh, what God can do and, and who he can call and who he can change. And we forget that we're supernaturalists. We forget that there was nothing likely about Abraham's conversion, but he believed. And you forget that there was nothing likely about your own conversion. Part of the point of Jonah is that if you, know, if you think that you are in God's good graces because there's just something about you as opposed to these other sinners that he really needs or that he really appreciates, then you just don't understand yourself or God. There's only one. There's only one who never ran away from God's presence. But he was cut off from the land of the living. And though Jesus was a spotless lamb, he was perfectly innocent without sin, this greater than Jonah cast himself into the depths. Uh, he took on the judgment that his people uh, deserve. Uh, God is the hero of the story here. 
His sovereignty over nations and over nature and chance and even over our hearts reminds us that there's nothing outside of his grasp. And next week, we're, we're going to see that he is continuing to run hard uh, after Jonah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are not only a great and mighty God, but a pursuing, loving God. Uh, we pray now that you would help us to trust you. God, help us to know and to believe that when we can't see how anything's going to work out, we can still trust you. We can cry out to you. We can expect that you hear us, that you hear our prayers. God, help us to never write off anyone as too far gone for your mercy. God, help us to remember the great mercy that you've shown us. Soften our hearts. Teach us to follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.